0: And what was so interesting about that castle was that the
1: upper floors had these large stately bedrooms with windows that looked out over Lake Geneva or to France on the other side, and to the Alps. And it had these large dining rooms and party halls, and and they were all filled with the knight's armors and everything, and tapestries on the wall. And then on the ground level, that was where the horses were kept and the armor for the horses. But what was really interesting was that there was a level that was actually below the ground level, and that was the dungeon. And that was the dungeon where the prison was, that actually down there, was below the water level. And, and the dungeon, was, it was just a terrible place. I mean, you do, you're down there and you hear this, this continual lapping of the waves slapping against the stone, and there was cold mist, you know, in there, and, and the, the coldness just seemed to penetrate This dungeon, it didn't have any heat. The air was stale, it was damp, it was moldy. There was no system to remove human excrement. The dungeon just, it was a horrible place. And in the dungeon were these seven stone pillars that held the castle up. And on each one of these pillars, they had these iron rings in the columns there. And they were used to chain the prisoners to the columns who would then slowly die in the dungeon. And it was such a terrible place. And it was so astounding to go from the top floors with all the opulence and the luxurious living and the beauty. And in the same building downstairs is this terrible dungeon. I mean, the castle, it was so interesting for us as students. It's a place where your imagination just runs wild. You see the armor, you imagine battles and party halls and all. And then you go down the dungeon and all oh, and your imagination, you know. The prisoners who were captured and not killed and brought to the dungeon to languish away. It was just a really astounding place. There was one of the stone columns that was very special there because that's the column where Lord Byron, the famous English poet, carved his name in the column. And so he go see that. And why did he do that? He's the one who wrote the famous poem, Prisoner of Shion. And on that column where he carved his name in the iron ring there, That was the same iron ring that Lord Byron chained himself to so he could feel what it meant to be a prisoner of Shion day and night. And having chained himself to that column, it inspired him to write lines like, there are seven pillars of Gothic mold in Shion's dungeons deep and old. There are seven columns, massy and gray, dim with a dull imprisoned ray, a sunbeam which has lost its way, And in each pillar there is a ring, and in each ring there is a chain. That iron is a cankering thing, for in these limbs its teeth remain with marks that will not wear away till I have done with this new day, which now is painful to these eyes which have not seen the sun arise. Oh, (laughs) how did he get that? Those words came to him after he chained himself to that column to feel the experience of being chained as a prisoner in the dungeon there and he walked the same uh, uh, tracks that had worn into the stone from the prisoners who paced in anguish as they slowly died in the column that they were chained to. See, Lord Byron made himself aware of that dungeon to know what it was like to be a prisoner in Shion. And it was not good enough for Lord Byron just to go down there and know it was there and take a little short visit. He knew that he had to become chained to a column there before he had the passion to write Prisoner of Shion. And that dungeon was just an awful place. And 10 minutes was enough for me to get out of there, but spending day and night there. But that, what was so amazing was that it was the same building that the lords and the knights lived above in such luxury. I mean, having gone from the upper floors there, you know, standing the judging, you say, I wonder if any of those lords... Ever ever walk downstairs to this terrible lower dungeon of death and suffering? I wonder how many of them walked down there to make themselves aware of what was a part of their house that they were living in. I mean, if a person lived in the Chateau Chillon on the upper floors there and never went down to the bottom of the dungeon there, he'd never be aware that he was living on top of a place of death, a terrible place. He could actually deceive himself into thinking that there is no dungeon prison that I'm living in. He could keep himself from knowing right there in his own castle underneath where he lived that in the same building there were prisoners who were hated him and who wanted to kill him if they had a chance to. But he could keep himself from knowing that if he never went downstairs. And he could deceive himself into thinking that there is no dungeon and our body is like the Chateau Chillon. Our body is like the castle. In reality, this is what Paul is referring to when he says, I know that in me, dwelleth no good thing that is in my flesh. We have in our body a lower dungeon of death. And that's the lower dungeon of our own sinfulness. And just as the dungeon of Shion is a part of the castle, our sinful flesh is part of our body. Now the question is, do we ever take time to walk downstairs? we ever get to, take time to, to become aware again of how sinful we are? What happened to Naomi in chapter one was that she saw her own bitterness against God and just how sinful she was. And when that happened to Naomi, she was taken down to the dungeon of her own corrupt heart, and she was shown what a destitute, miserable sinner she was. And Naomi never forgot that, and that's what made Naomi poor in spirit. And whenever Naomi would remember that, which she did in chapter one, Naomi would just be walking down to the dungeon of her own life, and she would become again poor in spirit. That's what needs to happen to us. As believers, we need to be like Naomi and remember our own sinfulness. And that's how we walk down to the dungeon of our own corrupt heart. Because there's always the temptation for us to say, I'm not that bad. I'm really not bad. As a matter of fact, I'm really something. In reality, we're nothing. And in the past, criminals, they had to wear this board around their neck, you know, that said what they did and what they, therefore what they are. Boy, if we had to wear a sign like that, that'd be horrible. But we see many examples in the scriptures of those who did not deceive themselves into thinking they are something when they're nothing. Job. Job did not stay in the upper floors of his life castle. He walked down and he visited the lower dungeon of his own life when he said in Job 42, 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. Now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. In Job verse 4, Job said, Behold, I am vile. And so we see Abraham, Abraham didn't stay only in the upper chambers of his his life castle. He walked down to the lower house. And it says in Genesis 18, 27, Abraham answered and said, behold, now I've taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Charles Wesley, he didn't stay only on the upper floors. He took a walk down in his own life, the lower part there. And that's how he was able to write one of the stanzas in his hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul, just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness, false and full of sin. I am. Isaiah, he didn't say only in the upper floors. He took a walk down lower dungeon when he wrote in Isaiah 6 verse 5, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. David, oh, David, what can we say about David? He had quite a look. And he wrote in Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verse three, for I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Peter he didn't stay upstairs. He went downstairs also in Luke 5, 8. Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' feet. And he said, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. John Newton, amazing grace. How sweet the sound to save a wretch like me. What this means is that When these words come to us like, I abhor myself, I am vile, I'm dust and ashes, I'm all unrighteousness, false and sin, I'm undone, a man of unclean lips, shape and iniquity, a sinful man. That's the road. That's the road for us to be poor in spirit. That's the first beatitude. Because without being poor in spirit, there is no blessing. And whenever a person walks down to visit the lower dungeon of his life, and sees himself where really is sinful, then he becomes poor in spirit. And Naomi did that. And the Greek word for poor, in Matthew 5, 3, it means being bent over, or crouched, or cowering. So the word poor describes what happened to Naomi. When a person is beat down to their knees, she becomes poor in spirit. You know, I used to, as you know, I traveled to Japan, and used to go to Japan twice a year since 1982. And rice, that's the major crop. Everything is rice. The whole country turns around rice. Most important crop in Japan's everywhere. And rice plants, they grow straight up. And then as the kernel in the rice gets uh, heavy, the heavy kernel at the end of the stalk, and as it gets ready to, to reap, the, the stalk bends more and more and more and more. And the weight of the rice, the weight of the rice kernel there, it makes the stalk just bend over and it has always pointed out to me, how the rice plant teaches us what true greatness is. Like the rice, the greater the person, the more the person will bend in tsutsumashi, in a humility, will bend. See, Paul knew this. That's poor in spirit. Paul knew this being poor in spirit when he wrote in Romans seven twenty four, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death?" It's arrogance, it's pride that says, "No, I'm no sinner." I don't have any dungeon of sin in my life. I'm rich. I'm increased with goods. I have need of nothing. But that, that attitude there, that's the opposite of being poor in spirit. Therefore, no blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They shall inherit the kingdom. See, being poor in spirit or seeing ourselves as sinful, it brings us to dethrone ourselves, to take ourselves off the throne of ruining our life and enthrone God as the ruler of our life. It's the impeachment process of self from running our lives, and it's what the Bible calls denying self. And enthroning God is what the Bible calls following the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke nine twenty three. He said unto them, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. That'd be dethroning. Let him deny himself. That'd be impeachment. And take up his cross and follow me. That'd be enthroning God. And then he went on to say, daily, let him deny himself, take up his cross, daily. And that word daily is so important because it teaches us the process of dethroning self and enthroning God. It's not a one-time event. It keeps on happening because we keep on having coups and we have to dethrone again. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does the kingdom of heaven mean? That God is the king. That God is the king. God, king over the life. When self is enthroned, God is enthroned. That means there must be an allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ as king of my life. There must be an obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ as king of my life. There must be a reliance on the Lord Jesus Christ, king of my life. None of that's gonna happen unless a person is poor in spirit. And so this is what it means to have a dethroned self life and enthroned God life, and then it's gonna be Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's the first step that Naomi takes there in being blessed by God when she became poor in spirit as a result of having her own sinfulness come out in front stage there in chapter one when she became bitter and she blamed God. And that's when she became acutely aware of her own sinfulness. And when we become acutely aware of our own sin, Then when we read a verse like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, it changes a little bit. And it goes like this, for I have sinned and become short of the glory of God. See, It's not for you have sinned and come short of the glory, it's personal. And the knowledge of personal sin will not only make us poor in spirit, but it'll make us mourn. It'll make us very sad. That's the second beatitude. Blessed are they that mourn. We have to be conscious of our personal sin. That's the most terrible thing about our lives, that that in our bodies, we've got this dungeon underneath. But many people know their own personal sin, but they don't know what to do with it. Even Sigmund Freud, you know, the famous Austrian psychologist, he knew about personal sin because he looked into his own heart and in his psychoanalysis, he looked in the hearts of his patients and he wrote these words, original sin is a fact. And since psychoanalysts have revealed a whole world of rottenness, which had not been suspected by psychologists. But Sigmund Freud, he rejected God, so he forfeited the help from God. So there was no inheriting the kingdom, and um, there was no comfort. And the help of God that he offers are to those who are poor in spirit, and that's to inherit the kingdom of God, inherit God as a king, have the Lord Jesus Christ as king, And the help that God offers to those who mourn over their sin is the comfort. It's the comfort by the Lord Jesus Christ. But if a person's not willing to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no help. There's no help from kingship. There's no help from comfort. There's just depression. So it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. Now, was just said, personal, for I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means, for I have consciously sinned. And come short of the glory of God. For I have willfully sinned in come short of the glory of God. That's a definition of sin. It shows the, the personalness of it. And this brings us to you know, why do we have a creation museum? What's the big deal? You know, if they want to believe in evolution, let them believe in evolution. Why is that important? Why is that critical? Is it just because, you no, know, I'll tell you, promoting the truth of creation and fighting against the lie of evolution is important because as a sinner, man is confronted with his violation of not some impersonal law of what's good and what's ethical that will lead him to be judged, you know, impersonally for his sin. No, no, when creation is believed, a sinner is confronted with the violation of the will of his creator, which will lead him to be judged personally by his creator. And so in essence, sin is only against God. Which is why David said in Psalm 51.4, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified. I mean, what is he saying against thee and thee only? He committed adultery against Bathsheba and against Uriah and murder. But he looks up to heaven and he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil? See, for Naomi to be blessed by being poor in spirit and to mourn, she knew both the consciousness of her sin, she knew the guiltiness of her sin. And that means that what contributed also to Naomi being poor in spirit was that she was aware of the consequences of her sin. She offended God when she made those accusations. She discouraged Ruth when she made those accusations. She defamed God to her people when she made those accusations. Those were consequences of her sin. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of your sin, Naomi, is death. Sin inflicts death sin inflicts death wounds. Sin inflicts death wounds on ourselves. So like we said, these are self-inflicted. The ultimate self-inflicted death wound is suicide. And sin inflicts death wounds on others. And Naomi sinned when she said these words. She inflicted self-wounds on herself and others. But it was her knowledge that she did that that made her poor. And then God said, blessed are you, Naomi, because you're poor in spirit. Blessed are you, Naomi, because you mourn. You know, the Greek word for mourn here is interesting because it it describes a particular mourning that happens when a person buries a child. That's uh, a mourning that's unbelievable. Uh, When a parent has to bury a child, it should never happen that way. But this is what's described of it. Israel is gonna do this type of grieving is when they recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ, who they rejected and pierced, is their God and savior in zechariah 12:10 zechariah 12:10 when god says i will pour out upon the house of david and upon the inhabitants of jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is bitterness for his firstborn naomi's poverty of spirit and her mourning led to her repentance which leads to obedience and deliverance. Godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7 10. Godly sorrow worketh repentance and salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of this world worketh death. So when Naomi found after she was emptied by her sin, and after she had mourned because of her sin, then she got the comfort. Blessed are they that mourn, they shall be comforted. The first comfort that she knew was the comfort that God has pardoned your sin, Naomi. And the pardon for that sin is wonderful. And it's a comfort that's described in 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Mercy, divine comfort, divine pardon. The Lord Jesus Christ, pardon. You know, it's an interesting name that the Lord Jesus Christ has given among his many names. In Luke two twenty five, 25, says there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was devout. He was just, and he says he waited for the consolation of Israel. He waited for the consolation of Israel. And then he holds the Lord Jesus Christ in his hands and he goes, Ah, here he is, the consolation of Israel, the great comfort. God says to his people, he says, Will you please go to the Jewish people and just comfort them in Isaiah 40, verse 1, 40, verse 1? Comfort ye, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Now, how do you comfort them? He says in Isaiah 40, verse 9, Isaiah 49, O Zion, that bring us good tidings, get thee up in the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. The comfort is to see the Lord Jesus Christ as Jehovah. The comfort is to say, see the Lord Jesus Christ as Behold your God. To receive the Lord Jesus Christ as God, that's the greatest comfort you can get. And we look forward to the day when all Israel is gonna say, oh, I found my God in Isaiah 25, verse nine. Isaiah 25, verse nine. And it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We've waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. We'll be glad and rejoice in his salvation. When the Lord Jesus Christ pardoned from sin, he gave the power also to resist sin, which he called being made whole. See, separation anxiety is very real. It's very real. I mean, the more people don't marry each other and just live together, you know what that promotes? Separation anxiety. And the more the you know, loved ones die, you know, you know what brings about separation anxiety. And the ultimate solution for separation anxiety is the Holy Spirit. Because when he said in John 14, 16 that I'll give you another comfort, he may abide with you forever, that means he stays with us forever. And that means he's the solution to separation anxiety. And that's the comfort that he gives to those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn. So may we be like Naomi to know the rulership of the King Jesus in our lives. May we be like Naomi who mourn for our sin and to know the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And may we get right with God. And I don't know all of you. Maybe somebody is here today, and maybe I do know you and I really don't know you. But maybe somebody is here today who's really saint inside themselves, you know, I really don't know the comfort. I can't really say that I have the Holy Spirit and that I know that he's going to leave, never leave me. I just don't really know that pardon. I have never really experienced that guidance. I come to church. I don't know the guidance and the peace, what he's talking about. But, you know, I want to. And I, and, and what he's saying there, I, you know, I, I, it's creating in me like, a, I want like that. I want that. And, and so if you really want to get right with God, you want to get right with God today, and you want to say, I want to really receive the Lord Jesus Christ and have this new life with Him. Then then, then and 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 or 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 maybe you know the Lord. And and you've kind of sealed off that door to the lower dungeon, and you're saying, I have need of nothing. Now's the time. Unseal the door and look down and realize your own sinfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for What the great change that you did, Naomi. And thank you, Lord, for the happy person that she became as she realized she was poor in spirit and needed God and let you be the king of her life. As she mourned for her sin and let you comfort her. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning who really hasn't done that, they really have not in reality, turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, I am a sinner. I am have need of everything i am sorry for my sin i want to receive you as my lord my savior this morning lord help them help them to stand not before man but before you lord and call on you and if there's someone in here this morning who who would like to say would like me to pray for them would like to say by the lifted hand pray for me i need christ pray for me i need the lord jesus christ raise your hand now i'll pray i'll pray for you anyone before we close in prayer Father, thank you so much for being the God of
0: all comfort in Jesus' name. Amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, Friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Do you believe God created the earth? Do you believe God created you in His image? Then come celebrate Museum Day at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California on Saturday, November 4th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Museum Day is a Christian family festival event with life-size dinosaurs, games, rides, contest prizes, fair food, vendor booths, petting zoos, live animal encounters, and super science experiments for kids, along with world-renowned speakers Tom Cantor, Eric Hovind. David Reeves, Russ Miller, Kevin Conover, Dr. John Baumgardner, and more. Free admission to the museum and all speaking engagements for you and your family and entire church family are free. The Creation and Earth History Museum is located off of Highway 67 and Woodside Avenue in Santee, next to the Santee Drive In. So bring your family and friends on Saturday, November 4th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. and strengthen your faith at Museum Day. For more information, call us at 619-599-1104 or creationsd.org. CreationSD.org.